Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. A figure in Jewish um, the Jewish spiritual landscape that has become a model for many contemporary Jews. Although he was born in Germany in 1886, it's way back. Um, uh, and we'll, we'll note that he died quite young in 1929. And yet around him is uh, an image of, of the possibilities uh, of the journey back to Judaism from um, extreme assimilation. He was born into a fairly wealthy family that had some Jewish pride. But as Rosenzweig, the man I'm talking about, Franz Rosenzweig, said our Judaism is like a souvenir, a family souvenir. Take it out. If you ever go to Greece or even Holy Land, you come back with an ashtray or a nice figure, uh, and you occasionally dust it off. It's oh, it was a wonderful trip to, <laughs> to to Greece or even the Holy Land. But it's not a living reality. It's some memory, a reminiscence of of what was, and you have a certain amount of pride, um, emotional attachment, but it's nothing that really constitutes your life in any significant fashion. And indeed, his parents encouraged him to, to get an education. Uh, father was very eager that he would become a, a physician, a doctor. And he began his university studies. Also, I should say, he, he was a really very uh, fine violinist and even had occasion to play with another amateur uh, violinist, Einstein. Albert Einstein was also an amateur violinist and happened to be in the same building. And they came and met with one another and they had a, a, a played a little Bach together. Uh, that's significant because Rosenzweig said, our culture has, now we're assimilated German Jews, is not the culture of Judaism, but it's the culture of the, of the Christians. The concerts we go to are Christian. The music I play is profoundly Christian, not only because of the origin of Bach, but it's church music. Um, the art I, I behold and wonder uh, and appreciate is church art. We're Christians in every respect, although our Judaism is like a souvenir. We're proud of it, but it's nothing really that we are engaged in in any uh, spiritual and active sense. So he went to study medicine with his, his violin behind him, or with him. Uh, but secretly, uh, he studied philosophy and history. Why secretly? Because the father said he should be practical. But we know what he was studying because he had a very fine relationship with his mother. We have hundreds of letters that he corresponded with his mother telling about what he was learning like from philosophy and history. But don't tell dad. Uh, he even took his, uh, his exams to be a medical doctor. But his real passion was philosophy. But that's problematic, too, from at least in the story. Because it was a period where, uh, and that was the first decade of the 20th century, where it was an attempt to reaffirm the enlightenment pro uh, promise of progress. 
if we use reason, we can advance all of human uh, experience in not only medicine, but politics, economics, all these topics, by the way, were new to the modern world. If we can study how societies organize itself economically, uh, but you have to do it academically, or certainly in engineering and the like. But, and that was his real uh, uh, engagement. But in the, ninth, in the first decade of the 19th century was a sense that, where's the progress? Of course, things have advanced on a material level, but are we better human beings? Um, and in that circle of friends that he, he had during his studies, they made a decision to affirm a form of Christianity. And what is even more confounding is virtually all of them were members of his family, his cousins, and they became Christians. Judaism was not an option because it was merely a sinner. Merely a souvenir, it didn't seem to have the vitality of certain forms of Christianity. Rosenzweig himself hesitated. Initially, he hesitated how can a person who's got read uh, the great philosophers, who's entered the world, the, the intellectual world of the, uh, of the modern period, affirm the notion of God? Or they speak about revelation, God spoke. You know, he he spoke in here, he would say, boy chicks, girl chicks, come here, I have something for you. Uh, God obviously didn't speak in Yiddish, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if anything, some sort of Hebrew, but nonetheless. Uh, it seemed to him fantastic and uncertain how you can possibly be a religious person, a uh, person who, who affirms and celebrates God and Torah, or in, this, in their case, of course, the Christian gospel. Um, and he hesitated. At one point... Rosenzweig visited one of his distant relatives who had been, become a Christian. Uh, and we have actually a photograph. It was in July 7th, by chance, 1913. That means a month, before, uh, a year before the First World War uh, exploded on us, so to speak. Um, and he was challenged. Because modern culture seems to lead us to relativism. It means you have your values, you see the world this way. Where is truth? Um, and they challenged, why do you accept Christianity? And Rosenzweig at that point said, all right. He may have said it more vigorously, all right. Um, but I want to become a Christian uh, as a Jew. And he recalled the image of St. Paul. He was once called Saul or Shaul. Um, he um, likewise came from in those terms, assimilated Jewish family. In the area of what we call Turkey, uh, Turkey, yeah, Turkey. <laughs> I was thought I was going to speak about Thanksgiving, <laughs> Turkey. <laughs> the, uh, Anatolia was called then, and he came to Jerusalem and studied, uh, much as many young people do today in Jerusalem to, to regain a knowledge of Judaism. He was even amongst those who questioned uh, Jesus's claim to be the Messiah, and then, he, as you recall. Um, uh, on a journey to Damascus, Paul had that Saint Shaul at that point, and uh, the great revelation called an epiphany, and he embraced Jesus and became one of the most forceful proponents of the new uh, religion that Jesus is not just a, a nice guy, a very noble Jew, but also God's emissary, which we call uh, Christ. Christ is a, is a 
a, a Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. Uh, so Moses Feig said, I would come to Christian like Paul. Give me a few months. This was in July. And I'll, 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 I'll approach the baptismal font. I'll become a Christian. And in preparation for that, he became more engaged in Judaism. And we know that on Yom Kippur, though well, I should back for a moment, uh, he attended his parents, the parents did go to the synagogue once or twice a year for, for Rosh Hashanah, the day, New Year's, and he found it boring, unengaging. But one last try, I'll go to a traditional synagogue in Berlin where there's still a large traditional community. And then he, after experience the Yom Kippur, and I just mentioned about the traditional Yom Kippur. It is very powerful if you go to an Orthodox synagogue. At one point, you're dressed in a shroud, in a white garment, and you prostrate yourself. Uh, he never heard of that. And it overwhelmed him, apparently. And he wrote back to his cousin, who was, going to, who was now a Christian, and was going to serve as his, his, uh, um, his godfather at the baptism. And he said, Rudy, something very simple. Rudy was his cousin. Rudolph, they called him Rudy. Rudy, you're not going to understand, but it's no longer necessary for me to become a, a Christian. And he says, he's no some German, it's a very powerful sentence. Therefore, I will remain a Jew. Um, and he becomes a Jew, not by just affirming his Judaism, but a Jew who studies Judaism. And he, first he had to learn the, the prayer book. Then he wasn't familiar with the traditional prayer book. He became a very earnest attempt, a Jew in, in terms of assembling for himself the rudiments of Judaism. Unfortunately, sadly, in August 1914, the war broke out. And he was a good German. He, he volunteered. He didn't just get conscripted, but he volunteered to be uh, a soldier. In fact, an officer in, in the Kaiser's, the Emperor's army. But as a soldier, he witnessed death. He was surrounded by death. He himself was wounded twice, um, but re after him, um, but returned to battle. But then he began to, uh, to question the very basics of Judaism and religious faith in general. He began to write a book while in the trenches. He didn't have Google, Schmoogle. He didn't have uh, <laughs> access to a library. Uh, a brilliant book. Uh, but he wrote on postcards and thinned army newspaper, onion skin, and he said them to his mother, don't show dad. Uh, and she kept them in a shoebox, these letters. And we have asked those letters now. Um, when he returned, and he survived the war, when he returned, he gathered those, the letters that his mother had been keeping in the shoebox. And within two months, he published a book called The Star of Redemption, a very difficult book. And The Star of Redemption, of course, refers to Judaism, a star, the, um, the Magam David that um, beholds the promise of of redemption, which the enlightenment belief and progress would, would, could not uh, grant us. Um, that if we're going to enter paradise, uh, we're going to have to do it in a different way, and Judaism can instruct us how to do that. Um, he made a decision when he returned. First of all, you've made a decision that the book, all his friends said, you should publish with Harvard University Press, University of Chicago Press, University of Arizona Press, a prestigious academic press. No, this is a Jewish book. And he had published with a publisher of Jewish 
calendars, cookbooks, children's books. Uh, and on the cover, the date, he said, in the, the year of, of creation, 5,632, not 1921. Uh, it was a Jewish book, but very <coughs> philosophical. He challenged the philosophical uh, presumptions of culture from way back from Aristotle and even before Aristotle, uh, that their approach to understanding human questions was mistaken. And the first question he asked, and this is crucial for the rest of the story, uh, philosophy can talk about the fact that we are finite in broad terms. Philosophy is concerned with universal necessary truths. Two plus two is four here in, in uh, this is not Scottsdale, Scottsville, first time I've been in this part of the country, and it's true at the University of Chicago, true in Jerusalem, and it was true way, way back. It's universal, independent of time and place. But the, the fact that we, each of us, has a biography. We're born at uh, a certain time, uh, and we are all destined to, to death at a certain date. And our life is, the life we experience is that trajectory, from our birth to our death. Uh, because death is only the ultimate signature of the fact that we are finite, that each of us have our own story, our own life. And philosophy cannot address that. It's not interested, name is Paul, right? But my real name is Pinchas, but I never liked the name Pinchas. Because uh, he's an awful figure in the Bible, really a fanatic, uh, a misogynist. That's not me. <laughs> Anyways, I call myself Paul. <laughs> but even in Israel, we pronounce slightly different. Paul. But anyway, <laughs> um, my grandchildren call me Saba Paul, which means Grandpa Paul. Although they know, they know my name, his real name is Pentecost. But nonetheless, that's who I am. Uh, and I was, I was born a Jew, and I will um, part as a Jew. But that's only my ethnic identity. The question is whether my spiritual identity is likewise um, Jewish. That's what I want to talk about. Um, so Rosenzweig said the real questions that face us, that really are urgent, is my biographical reality, that I am finite. Uh, and each of us, philosophy cannot address these questions. Um, I was asked whether Rosenzweig is an existentialist. That's characteristic of existentialism, that we, uh, our questions of our own existence precede any concept of ex essence, which is universal. Uh, and philosophy, cannot, by its very nature, is not interested in Paul or Pinchas, if you wish. I couldn't care. But I care very deeply, <laughs> as each of us care who we are. And the people whom we love and care about are also biographically determined. And here he thinks that Judaism uh, uh, speaks to us individually. Um, he has at the center of his book a reflection. We call it exegesis, a reflection on the Song of Songs. And if you've ever read the Song of Songs, it says nothing about God. Nothing. It doesn't say anything about shul or Jewish, <laughs> a Jewish community center. It's just simply a love story and a very... Um, almost salacious love story. I don't know if you ever read the book of Song of Songs. It's about a man and woman who are in love. And she loves his muscular thighs, and he loves her, her, uh, her breasts. Uh, and it goes on that fashion. Her eyes, her beautiful eyes, her lips. It's, how can that such a book enter the Bible? But Rabbi Akiva was responsible for bringing the Bible together. Said, it is the 
most important book in the Bible. How? Uh, rabbis were obviously very uneasy about it, although it's read on, Shab on, on Shabbat in traditional Jewish life. It's a major book that we read on Passover, at the end of Passover, the Song of Songs. Of course, it's just, since it's so uh, almost pornographic, they read it very clearly. <laughs> and they glide over it. But it's there <laughs> of our tradition. And Rosenzweig said, indeed, it is the central book. Why? Because love, divine love, as we, we wish to experience divine love, we don't really, we go into prayer with the hope of hearing the voice of God, is always particular. I love you. And there's a famous line in the song, why did you pick me of the thousands of, or actually tens of thousands of beautiful women marching through the streets of Jerusalem? Why me? It's precisely, it's a particular individual we love. Uh, it's not a philosophically determined person we love. It is because of uh, what is often called philosophically preferential love. We don't love everyone in that fashion. We love people who are in part, a part of our life. And that's what um, is unique about uh, Jewish spirituality and the notion that God loves each of us in our particular uh, particularity in terms of our biography. God doesn't speak like a philosopher. He speaks like a lover. Uh, and he understands Judaism in that fashion. Uh, the prayers, the way we celebrate the Shabbat, um, and we can elaborate that if you wish. Uh, now the rest of the story is, after having published the book I mentioned before, Star of Redemption, he wanted to have a Jewish home, a woman who would share his now commitment to Judaism and exploring Judaism. He still had a lot of questions, a lot of doubts. And he found a woman who was prepared to join him in that journey. And he envisioned with her having a Jewish family, which a lot of kinder. He thought of having seven children. Unfortunately, sadly, tragically, he was only able to sire one child before he came down with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, which progressed very, very rapidly. He was never, that the child was born, he was never able to hold a child, to kiss the child. He couldn't physically. And yet, it was, I'm, I'm going to cry, I'm so schmaltz, I'm a schmaltzy Jew. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, you'll forgive me. Uh, <laughs> it's a very sad moment that he so much wanted to have a Jewish family. Uh, the rabbi told me he has four beautiful children and foster children. I assume you hug and kiss them galore. <laughs> you better. <laughs> but he was never able to do that. What occurred is that he remained the very rapid progression of the, the, the paralysis. All his voluntary organs were, were paralyzed. I mean, smiling, coughing. Uh, the involuntary organs, the breathing, the heartbeat, was still intact for almost eight years. And one pinky. And his wife's brother was an engineer, and he created some sort of typewriter, something like a typewriter. And they had a template and long very delicately um, stylus, constructed stylus, he would move to a letter and someone would sit by him and, and type it out. Uh, sometimes you can guess, you know, say A-N, then you realize he wanted to say and, but it was still very laborious, difficult. And in that fashion, he conducted extraordinary correspondence, extraordinary, not, feel, not a word of, of, of rancor, of self-pity, but simply a lot of humor, a lot of humanity, and spiritual expression. I continued to explore Judaism with that little finger. Uh, 
and also for his son, whom he was never able to hug. And I, know, I met the son, and the son, he was frightened by his father because he had involuntary spittle, saliva dripping down, and he, they, uh, he was like a scarecrow, so they would tie him to a chair, uh, so he would bend over, and the son was just terrified by a father who had involuntary noises and his spittle. Uh, what did occur, I should mention that, is the father, I wanted to say one thing before I come back to, the father with a little pinky wrote stories for his son, which we have, about zeppelins, about clowns, stories that you tell his child with that little finger. Uh, not, not frightening the child with that finger, but trying to share uh, an affirmation of life, although his life was no longer um, in any uh, obvious way with him although spiritually and internally he was very much alive. Uh, he also translated, began to translate the Hebrew Bible into a German that captured the, uh, the rhythm, the voice of the Bible in German. And he did that with Martin Buber. Also with that little finger, he uh, established a new school of Jewish learning. In Hebrew, we called Jewish school Bet Midrash, Sometimes we in Yiddish refer to the synagogue as a shul, school. That's strange, because part of the Jewish religious service is to study together. And you can be a plumber, you can be a, a professor at the university, uh, you can be a homeless person, and you study together. It's not an elite culture of study. It's not a university uh, reading. Uh, it is a way we bond in, the, uh, in honoring the, our, our intellectual and spiritual legacy together. Um, I, there's a uh, philosopher in Jerusalem, he said, the, the, the beauty of a minyan is, is a microcosm. And he is a left-wing professor, and religious. And he said, I, I have to pray, and I want to pray with my right-wing shmegegis. You use that term in, in Arizona? No? <laughs> That's a New York Yiddish. It means, <laughs> it means somebody you really don't, you know, you don't honor as being a nice person. <laughs> However, uh, because that's the glory of Judaism, is that the minyan is that is, it's a microcosm of, of a world of harmony and of, uh, and of uh, solidarity. You just don't pray with people who have the same income as you or the same occupation. Um, all of us are concluded in the minyan. Uh, so uh, Rosenzweig established a, a school just before he took ill, but was never able to participate active, well, he participated actively with that little finger. Uh, and that school was very special. He called it in the German Lehrhaus, which is the German translation of uh, Bet Midrash, or Shul, a house where you study. And I tell my students, study at the university. Uh, you study, at, uh, you learn at the university, but you don't study. Study is very different than learning. Um, uh, or, or academic study. You know, at the university, I'm certain you will have some familiarity or graduacy. You study alone. You prepare alone for an exam. And you have to go into the library, you'll see the people, all the students shaking their leg, saying that nervous. <laughs> and that's, that, that, that indicates a great deal of anxiety. In Judaism, traditional Judaism, you study together. Uh, and, you, and study not to dissect and analyze, but to absorb to have, as Rosenzweig's friend Martin Buber put it, a dialogue, a discussion. 
and you ask questions. The questions can come from anywhere. When you, when, uh, you read the Bible, can that be true? What is engaged? What, uh, I don't know if you ever heard the story of uh, uh, Saul in the Hebrew Bible. Um, he couldn't accept the decision to kill one of uh, his enemies. And then disobeying God, do you identify with him? And, uh, and Judaism is, is, has a, a culture of conversation. The Talmud, for instance, which registers Jewish opinion, but you're supposed to study the, the, um, uh, the dissenting opinion. You learn all of them. And you may identify with the dissenting opinion that as opposed to one that prevailed in Jewish teachings. But that's, that's a very democratic and interesting, just think about it. If you have learning with the finger, you know that? You've got to learn the opinions of the opponents. That spoke to Rosenzweig because he was, as a modern Jew, he was skeptical about a lot of teachings of Judaism, but engaged in a serious discussion, trying to understand uh, what the opinions of Judaism are, to participate in the conversation, the conversational flow of Judaism. So this school that he, he established was called the Jewish, the Free Jewish... Uh, Yiddish Fries, well, let's say, uh, translate, the free, the, the, the house of free Jewish learning. Free didn't mean it didn't have tuition. He felt that he should pay tuition in order to take it seriously. But all questions, all concerns, all anxieties were, were kosher, so to speak, and we could express them and have an ongoing conversation or dialogue with the traditional texts of Judaism. Moreover, there were no experts, no professors, no rabbis, as rabbis, we would study together. And we, uh, so it was a sense of community and not being taught, but learning uh, in this passion. That school succeeded in a city of uh, 24,000 Jews, many non-affiliated. It had at its height 11,000 students, 11,000. And that's in fact about children or the infirm, and those who are indifferent, that's really quite extraordinary. And what made it all extraordinary, too, is uh, Rosenzweig's life. Um, he, um, he obviously wasn't able to walk and go to synagogue, but they created, and he lived in a very um, modest apartment in an attic, and he was strapped. But every day he had three minyanim, three, the three prayers at the place. Uh, and he, he couldn't speak, but it was a presence. Uh, and many Jews and non-Jews would come to pray with Rosenzweig. Uh, I felt the poetic presence of a man who was basically entombed in his body. Uh, and we have many testimonies of the power of that experience. But I wanted to say something just to conclude before we have a discussion. Um, why, uh, what was important about the, the school that he established? He was a very gifted uh, student. He, when he, secretly, as I mentioned, he studied philosophy and he earned his medical degree. Uh, he also wrote a doctorate uh, on philosophy, and if name impresses you, Hegel, which is really a tough game. Uh, and he did it so well that it was published, unusual, it was published by the Academy of Sciences in Heidelberg, gained him fame. And his professor, I once started to write a biography of, of Rosenzweig, so I went to examine the records. The professor has the right, uh, you know, an evaluation. And he said, this is quite extraordinary. 
It's a, I tell the truth. I didn't understand the word of dissertation, but it's clearly brilliant. <laughs> and it was, and it was published. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. On the basis of his dissertation, another essay he wrote as a, as a scholar, he was invited to teach invited to teach at the University of Berlin, which is the dream of any academic at the time. Uh, it's like being called to teach at, well, the University of Chicago or, or the Hebrew University, not being, not applying, but means we want you. And he declined. And he wrote a long letter to his, his dissertation advisor, uh, trying to explain why he declined this position. The glory, the hope, the aspiration of any young academic. Uh, and that's what I wanted to read with you. Uh, do you have a copy of the text for me? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, oh, actually, did I bring one? I thought I brought a copy. Now, this is from a long letter that he wrote uh, to his, uh, his teacher explaining why he declined. Um, his teacher was perhaps the most preeminent uh, scholar in Germany, Menning Meinecke. And I, just one and we'll read it slowly and carefully because it captures his, the nature of his spirituality. Um, so I'm going to page 96. Now to leave metaphor aside and apply an awkward dichotomy to a crucial experience. I turned from a historian, the type of history he did was intellectual history, perfectly eligible for a university lectureship into an utterly ineligible, ineligible philosopher, meaning religious philosopher. The one thing I wish to make clear is that scholarship no longer holds the center of my attention and that my life has fallen under the rule of a dark drive, which I'm aware that I merely name by calling it my Judaism. The scholarly aspect of this whole process, the conversion of the historian into a philosopher, is only a correlate associated with, through, though it has furnished me with a wholesome corroboration of my own conviction that the great ghost I saw was not the devil. It seems to me that I am today more firmly rooted in the earth than I was seven years ago when I wrote my doctoral dissertation. The man who wrote The Star of Redemption to be published shortly by Kaufman, this Jewish publisher in Frankfurt, is of a very different caliber from the author of Hegel and the State. That was his dissertation in the book. Yet when all is said and done, the new book is only a book. I don't attach much undue importance to it. The small and at times exceedingly small thing called by Goethe, the great German poet, the demand of a day which is made upon me in my new position of this Bet Midrash, this house of study in Frankfurt. I mean the nerve-wracking, picky you, and at the same time very necessary struggles with people and conditions have now become the real core of my existence. And I love this form of existence despite the inevitable annoyance that goes with it. Fancy word cognition means scientific objective knowledge. No longer appears to me as an end in itself. It has it turned into service, a service to human beings, and, I, and not, I assure you, tendencies, intellectual tendencies. 
Any kind of tendentious work is not only distasteful, but downright impossible for me. Cognition is autonomous. I'll explain these terms momentarily. It refuses to have any answers foisted on it from the outside. Let me just pause here and explain. Uh, as a scholar, and unfortunately that's my vocation, I have to write books which pass the judgment and evaluation of fellow scholars. I have to address scientific questions, which, tell you the truth, are not the questions that I really aren't concerned with. You know, my wife, my children, or four grandchildren. I can just pause for a moment. When my daughter was now 42, and was seven or eight, she was curious what her father does. And this is in Israel, of course. So mother said, why don't you attend one of your dad's uh, classes? And when she came back, she sat in the front row. She came back, mother said, I was, what's your impression of dad? She goes like this, I'll say in Hebrew, because the Hebrew is, Abba Milamech dad teaches nonsense. <laughs> From my perspective, it is nonsense, you know. <laughs> It was influenced by Hegel or Aristotle. And, what's the <laughs> and those are not the, the, the questions that we as human beings have. As scholars, yes. And I have to spend days and weeks, footnotes, little footnotes. No one's going to read them, but I have to show that I read every, every relevant piece of literature, every pertinent scholarship, and address it. And I spend days, weeks, and I neglect my family and neglect myself in order to, to be a scholar. Uh, and Rosenzweig did that when he was a scholar. So uh, let's go back to that. Cognition means a scientific study is autonomous. It refuses to have any answers foisted on it from the outside. Yet it suffers without pro protest, having certain questions prescribed to it, the scholarly questions, from the outside. It means outside our, our own existence. And it is here that my heresy regarding the unwritten law of the university originates. Not every question seems to me worth asking. My, girl, my daughter would agree, even now she's, <laughs> she's a 42-year-old mother of four. Scientific curiosity and a nervous aesthetic appetite mean equally little to me today, though I was once under the spell of both, particularly the latter. Now I only inquire when I find myself inquired of, inquired of, that is, by men and women, of course, rather than by scholars. There is a human being. The German word man is translated. It's mensch, which is a, a neuter, a, 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 a above neuter. The Germans have a word for man in the sense that we use it, man, and one for Frau, but mensch is a human being. We translate it as man, but that's, poor. that's the way we translate it, but you'll forgive the translators. I'm anxious to answer the scholar qua human being, but not the representative of a certain discipline, that insatiable, ever-inquisitive phantom which, like a, a vampire, drains him whom it possesses of his humanity. I hate that phantom, as I do all phantoms. Its questions are meaningless to me. On the other hand, the questions asked by human beings have become increasingly important to me. This is precisely what I meant by cognition and knowledge as service, a readiness to confront such questions, to answer them as best as I can, out of my limited knowledge and my even slighter ability, you will now be able to understand what keeps me away from the university and forces me to follow the path that I have chosen. What is remarkable, he wrote this letter of his little pinky. Uh, and this captures, I think, uh, 
the basic texture of Judaism is uh, 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 as a spiritual journey. Uh, as I already suggested with the, the notion of the minyan being uh, a representative of all humanity, uh, and particularly, of course, the Jewish community. Um, Judaism, uh, in strong, uh, larger terms, is concerned with the purity of our soul, but it's much more concerned with the way we engage the world. Uh, traditional Judaism, of course, suggests all aspects of our life. Um, uh, you get up in the morning, you're supposed to say a prayer. I now, I'll be 78, still a young man of 78, but uh, more appreciate the fact that every day is a gift. And with, before you get out of bed, you're supposed to say, I thank God uh, for releasing me from my slumber and allow me to enjoy one more day of life. And even when you go to the restroom, there's a prayer. When you go and you leave the restroom, and even if you didn't have, had a rough time doing, you know, attending to your needs, you say a prayer. All aspects, even the trivial aspects of life, are to be celebrated as a gift. Um, as you undoubtedly know, on the Sabbath, uh, you're supposed to celebrate creation. And you're not supposed to pick flowers, even. It's like destruction of God's world. Um, Every aspect of life is to be uh, brought into your relationship to the divine. And most important, as your fellow human beings. We now recite the book of Leviticus. It's almost a perfunctory, without any real commitment. But just think about it. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, and the Hebrew word re'ah is not simply a friend. It's somebody who just shares your life at a particular moment. And then a few verses down, uh, is to love the stranger. For you were strangers in Egypt's land. Uh, and sometimes the stranger can be very terrifying. You don't know his, his or her culture. They may have a different skin color than yours. Uh, they may at one time be your tormentors, but you ought to love them. What love means is not to embrace, uh, as you have in the book of, of Song of Songs, but the care. Uh, the Hebrew grammar tells us there's a distinction between loving God with all your passion, all your might, and, and the grammar suggests that love of a neighbor and love of a stranger um, is a love that is expressed in charity, care. We call it in Hebrew, gimilut hasidim, acts of loving kindness. Uh, it's the kindness that uh, signifies uh, the love of the world and the love of our fellow human beings. Uh, and it's not such an exalted spiritual journey, but Judaism has a very concrete sense of the urgency that we are all are human beings and to appreciate the fact that, uh, that we want to be, we wish to love the stranger and love the neighbor because each of us wants to be loved. You know, it's love the neighbor as yourself as you would like to be loved. We all are desperate in need of being affirmed, people being, falling under the canopy of, of, of people who care for us. Um, and the center of Jewish spiritual life, according to Rosenzweig, was an acknowledgement that even though we don't have a clear idea of what revelation is about, or God's word, or even about the notion of God, but we affirm the fact uh, that God loves us. Uh, and try to 
in the prayer trying to comprehend that. But I want to conclude with one of us. Uh, if I still have time. Oh, yeah. We have until two. So we have uh, roughly 12 minutes left. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Move back to a, a, a contemporary of Rosenzweig, whom you all heard of and perhaps read, and Franz Rosen, um, another Franz, but Franz Kafka. Kafka was as confused about Judaism as he was confused about how to have relationships with women. He never really succeeded. Uh, but he was confused what it meant to be in this world as a Jew. And one way of understanding that confusion, uh, which is at the heart of what I've been talking about, uh, is this book called the, uh, the Trial. In German, the word for a trial is a pro process, which is the same word in German for process. And we could understand Kafka's book on the trial as a process of life. Life is a trial, and his concern is there's a judge, I don't know who he is, I don't know what criteria of his, that he's judging me, but somehow, as a Jew, I still see myself as accountable to something higher than myself, something higher than the pragmatic criteria of this world. And he's bewildered. He doesn't know if there's a, who the judge is and what, what, are, what are the criteria, what are the principles of being judged. But he finds himself accountable, and that bewilders him because he doesn't know why and how? And that is perhaps the, the ultimate understanding of Judaism, that we're accountable to something higher than ourselves. And the only way we really can express our accountability is, if I can put it simply, is by being in a mensch. Uh, a mensch, again, it doesn't mean man, it means a human being. And what it constitutes being a human being, there's a lovely novel by a Russian uh, author called um, Vasily uh, um, Vasily Kaufman, oh, I forgot his name. Get all day. That's what happens when you get hit 78, you begin to forget names. G G Grossman. I, I just pressed the right button. <laughs> Vasily Grossman. And he wrote this novel, um, which is considered the, the most significant novel in Russian since Tolstoy's man, uh, War and Peace. It's Life uh, and Death. Life and Death, yeah. You've read it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's a wonderful book. Wonderful. And what, remember, the conclusion is written during the, Stalin, the Battle of Stalingrad. What only thing we can cling to ultimately is small acts of human kindness. The small acts of human kindness, giving water to a, a, a German prisoner, you recall. Uh, and that brings us back to a question that was asked before to me when we had lunch. Uh, do I know any models of, <laughs> that I can talk about as embodying uh, uh, this wisdom? Uh, not just teaching the wisdom, embodying it. I would say Rosenzweig. But we also have in Judaism a notion of 36 righteous. You may have, and we don't know who they are. 36 righteous people. It's a double of, of 18. 18 is high. Uh, they don't know who they are, but they embody the virtues of Judaism on this level of, of menschlichkeit, of decency. There was a book written just after the Shoah where the whole world seemed to collapse, certainly the Jewish world and by a French writer, André Schwarzbart, and it's called The Last of the Just. 35 of these, these, these righteous individuals were decimated, had lost their lives in Auschwitz. But there's at least one left, the last, and he doesn't know who he is, but there's always that hope that Menschlichkeit has not vanished from our world. Um, and, uh, of course, Rosenzweig 
uh, wanted to re-energize and re for his own life uh, the possibilities that we all somehow at least will be uh, alert to the commandment to be righteous. Uh, so maybe you can ask me some questions. <laughs> I have a question. Yes, yeah, certainly. Of the uh, trio, I won't use Trinity, okay. of uh, Jewish existentialist writers, uh, I would, the third one being Lev Shestov, we already got this guy and it's Martin Boomer's, Boomer's the third. Martin Buber has made the jump into the Gentile philosophical world. Rosenzweig and Shestov, it's like they never existed. Do you yeah. know why that is? Uh, it's not totally true, but it's largely true that Rosenzweig hasn't made an impact. Um, because his languages and his concerns are really circumscribed to Judaism, per se. Buber's famous book, I Am Thou, I'll say something about that tonight, but I can just tell you a preview. Um, it's the nature of human relationships. He only mentions three Jews. They happen to be Jesus, Paul, <laughs> and, Pe and Peter. Um, but he mentions far more than the, um, the, those three Jews that um, dominate the New Testament. Um, Buddha, uh, Chinese philosophers. It's a universal message. And as such, it's of course, uh, uh, speaks to all human beings and, uh, uh, and continues to do so. I hadn't, it's not really important, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, um, for many years, I, and still am, the advisor to the Boo family about its literary uh, estate, what should be published and what should be um, the terms of publications. Um, uh, Boober's books in German sold in tens of thousands. At one time, uh, I and Thou in English sold 35,000 copies per year. Today it's down to maybe 10,000, but still read. Uh, so he has extraordinary resonance in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the world. Also in Chinese, the Chinese now are very interested in Buber. Uh, as, his work's gonna be in, well, it's already been, some have been translated to Chinese and Japanese. Uh, any possible European language you can think of, from Finnish to, of course, Italian and whatever. Um, so you're right in the question. But of course, his message is, is in a universal garb, as opposed to um, Shestov and, and uh, Rosenzweig. Although Rosenzweig intended the Star of Redemption to address all human beings. Um, what he meant by the Star of Redemption is not the ethnic symbol of Judaism, but the, the, the existential and spiritual truths that Judaism represents. And as such, Judaism should speak to all human beings. Who do you suppose Rosenzweig read when he was studying philosophy that might have influenced Star of Redemption? Oh, you know exactly what he read. You know how we know he read a very bizarre story. Uh, when the Nazis came, he, he died in 1929 uh, of pneumonia, two years before penicillin was discovered, and penicillin would have relieved him of his pneumonia. Um, he, couldn't, he, was, he had nurses 24 hours a day and the nurse fell asleep and he started to groan apparently groan and scream for help um, but she didn't hear him and he passed away um, uh, in his early 40s 
what was the question? I forgot. Yeah. Who do you think he Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Oh, that's the story. So when the Nazis came to power, the family decided, the wife and one child, he only had, was able to sire one child, decided to emigrate to Palestine. And they assembled his library uh, and with all his little markings. And on the ship going to Palestine with the library, it stopped in the port of, of, of Tunis. And it was impounded because the, the, the Tunisians were opposed to the Zionist enterprise. Today, Rosenzweig's library is in the center of the municipal library <laughs> of, of, of Tunis. And scholars have gone there, and there's Rosenzweig's library, so we know exactly what he read. Moreover, we have the manifest that went with the ship, listing all the books that he read. Um, so we know he was influenced by, of course, uh, uh, the, the leading German philosophers, the classical German philosophers, and the vocabulary and such uh, is there. What, he, what is unique about the book, and I, forgive me being slightly academic, um, he has quotes from the, 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 the Greek philosophers, even the church fathers, and the major uh, philosophers, and poets like Goethe, the great German poet, but bouncing off citations from the Jewish, classical Jewish sources, which he assembled the knowledge of within a couple of years, this extraordinary knowledge. And so he has a dialogue, if you wish, between Jewish wisdom and philosophical wisdom. Uh, and if you read it carefully, you can, he doesn't actually, he does something very annoying, perhaps, to scholars. He doesn't give a source citation, doesn't use quotation marks, but those are familiar with the writings know that he's quoting Goethe or, or St. Augustine as opposed to Rabbi Akiva. Um, uh, just indicating that um, the type of knowledge that prevails in Judaism uh, is attentive to, to questions that uh, philosophy uh, doesn't have the tools or even the, the concern to address. Excellent. We want to thank uh, the professor for this uh, learning today. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.